Good morning. Am I on? Can you hear me? Oh, I'm on. Okay. Am I up here at the right time? Yes. yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> Doug said he forgot to introduce me, so I was being a little uncertain about when I was supposed to come up, too. So. But welcome. It's uh, so good to be here with you this morning. Um, are they going to bring the lights on, or are we going to... Oh, okay. Like, you can all sit down. I don't, sorry, I didn't know I was supposed to, just to tell you to do that. You can sit down. Sorry. Uh, it's really good to be back with you. Some of you may remember I was here uh, about a year ago, maybe. Um, my name is Peter, by the way, for you who weren't here that time or don't remember. And uh, I teach at Phoenix Seminary, where uh, Doug is, is one of my students, and I'm really secretly here just to check in on him. So, no. Uh, but it's really a joy. One of my favorite things as a professor is to get to, um, to visit my students at, at their ministries and see uh, the people that they minister to. One of the things I want to encourage you to do before we jump in this morning and look at our text is... Um, Doug's encouraged you to be praying this week about all that's going on, but I want to encourage you specifically to pray for your leaders. Um, I've been speaking with many pastors uh, who are students or friends of mine, and all church leaders right now, this is new territory for all of them, right? This whole coronavirus has taken everybody by surprise. So I just want to encourage you to pray for your leaders, that God would give them wisdom, and then also encourage you to have extra grace with them as they make some tough decisions in the next few weeks. You heard from Doug already, they're going to meet in his backyard. Um, and uh, I'm sure he wasn't expecting to have everybody in his backyard next week, but here we are. So I just want to encourage you to have a bit of extra grace. Some of you may think, oh, they're, they're exercising too much caution, and some of you are going to think, not enough caution. And I want to encourage you to have grace for your leaders over these next few weeks. Well, our text this morning is from James chapter 4, and I'd ask you to go ahead and turn there as I begin. James chapter 4, we're going to be looking at just two verses. When Doug first assigned me these verses, I thought, man, only two verses? And then as I worked through them, I thought, oh my goodness, these two verses pack quite a punch. And as you know, at this point in the book of James, that is James' style. He's not necessarily a man of many words, and he's not like Paul where he likes to go into long, developed arguments. Instead, he often gets right to his point, doesn't he? And he's often in your face when he does it. And our text this morning is that way. Well, I was reading in a book a number of years ago when I was a student about a naval officer who... Um, after he was out of the Navy, had an opportunity to work in the White House for several years. Uh, this was back during the first Bush White House, so George H.W. Bush. And he got to work for the president for two years. But in those two years, he never had an opportunity to actually meet the president. He was a little bit lower on the, on the totem pole, but he was in the White House. And as the pre president's term came to an end, he had the opportunity to take his family to the Oval Office to finally meet the president. And he describes in the book how terrified and nervous he was because it was him and his wife and two little boys age two and five and here he was about to take his family with these two little boys into the most powerful office in the world right the president's office the oval office and meet the most powerful man in the world and so he was nervous both he and his wife were they dressed the boys extremely well because they did not want to disappoint the president of all people. And they gave the boys strict instructions about how to behave. But that doesn't matter when you have two boys, right? And so when they went into the Oval Office and the president came in to meet them, they were overwhelmed with nervousness and fear that the boys were going to do something to embarrass them. And he describes the remarkable response of the president in that moment. And it's a response that has always stuck with me. I read this book about 15 years ago. 
And the way he describes it has never left me. Because he says that the president could immediately sense how nervous he was. And he could sense that he was particularly nervous about his two boys. And so President Bush went over to one of the doors in the Oval Office, opened it, and in came the family dog. And he said it immediately diffused the entire situation, right? And he said they were all delighted. He said his boys were delighted with meeting a dog, right? They didn't care about the president. They cared about the dog, right? <laughs> but he says he and his wife were delighted with a gentleman as concerned with preserving our dignity as with his own. And there's something that has always struck me about that line. A man as concerned with preserving their dignity as he was with, as he was with preserving his own dignity. Right? Because this is the president after all. He's a busy man. Even at the end of his term, he's a busy man. There's no reason why he has to meet with some family that's low on the totem pole in his White House office. The president has thousands of people who work for him, right? And certainly when they come in with their kids, there's no reason why the president has to take time and energy to care about their needs and their dignity and what they're worried about. And yet he did. And in that moment, President Bush showed enormous character and grace to serve this family. That phrase is even more striking to me now than when I first read it. Because of the world that we live in, particularly a world with online media that amplifies every possible outrage and that seems to run on scare tactics and outrage. A media that often works to tear down, to put down, and to shut down others, right? And unfortunately, Christians are not entirely immune from this. Precisely because we are a people who care a lot about obedience, we care a lot about God's moral standards, we can sometimes be the most susceptible to an attitude of judging others and speaking bad about them. I think just the last few days we've seen this, haven't we? I've been watching as Christians react to the coronavirus and, and as they react to each other, and particularly church leaders, and some condemning others for closing church. Right? Oh, you're not trusting God, so you're canceling. And on the other side, I've seen people say the exact opposite. Well, you don't love your neighbors precisely because you're willing to meet today on Sunday. Yes. And the reality is that Christians can sometimes be the worst at judging and condemning others. Sometimes we can be the least concerned about the real dignity of others. And what I want to say to begin with this morning is that the problem that we're going to talk about, the problem that James addresses, is not ultimately a problem out there, right? It's a problem in here. And that's why James addresses it, along with all the other things he does in this letter. He wants Christians to beware of the danger that he's going to talk about. And so this morning I want to look at our text, because what we have a need to do, we have, a, we have this need as Christians to find ways to address each other in our disagreement that's filled with grace and not with judgment. To, to address each other in ways that are humble and that are not proud. And that's precisely what James is after, okay? So I hope by the end today we're going to see that, have the wrong response and the proper response. But let me read our text for us first this morning. So look in your Bibles, if you would, at James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. James says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save 
and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? What I want to do this morning is walk us through this text with three basic points. The first is, I want to talk to you about how do we identify the problem that James is after. It's the problem that's in your bulletin in the title of the sermon. That is the problem of judgmentalism. But I need to talk about it for a minute because it's often confused with other things. So I want to talk about how to identify it. Second, I want to talk to you about how James defines it. Because even if we're able to identify it in our lives, James says something really important about what judgmentalism really is. Another way to say it is James tells us about the problem behind the problem of judgmentalism. And then the last thing I want to talk about, and maybe the most important, is how do we address it? What tools does James give us for addressing this problem when it does come up in our midst, right? When Christians are not immune from this problem, how does he deal with it? So the first thing is, the first point is, how do we identify it? And what I want to say here is that judgmentalism is not making a judgment. Judgmentalism is not the same thing as making a judgment. Or another way to say this is not every judgment that we have to make as Christians is a form of judgmentalism. Now the reason this is so important is because I think that it used to be the case that John 3.16 was the most popular verse, even among non-Christians. Okay? But there's been a shift. And now the most popular verse, or at least a close runner-up, is a different verse, Matthew 7.1, which most people don't know the reference of, but they know the verse. <laughs> Judge not, lest ye be judged, right? And people love this verse today because anytime somebody tells them what they can or can't do, the response can be, judge not, right? You can't tell me how to live. I can live however I want because Jesus said, judge not. Now, what I want to say very clearly is that not all judging is judgmentalism, yeah? Uh, the Greek language, unfortunately, does not have a separate word for what we call judgmentalism. And so it has to use the same word, judge, in each context and we have to read the context carefully to know whether the Bible is talking about a good kind of judgment that we do need to make yes or a bad way of doing that which we call judgmentalism are you with me on this in fact if you look at Matthew chapter 7 the context it becomes very clear and if you just think about it more broadly it's really obvious isn't it is Jesus saying you're never allowed to make moral distinctions between good and wrong good and, good and bad right or wrong of course not how would his ministry be possible if that were the case, <laughs> right? How would James's letter be possible if judge not meant you're never allowed to tell people they're doing something wrong, do you see? How could we call people to repentance? No, of course there are times and places in which we need to call sin, sin, right? But that's not what Jesus is concerned about in Matthew chapter 7. Instead, he's concerned about people, about the way that people do that. So look what he says. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. But after verse 1 of chapter 7 in Matthew, he says, Judge not that you, not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? That's funny, by the way. That's a really funny thing to think about. Have you ever thought about that? Think about it. It's funny. <laughs> or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to never judge your brother and never tell him he's doing anything wrong. Is that what he says? No. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. How many of you know that it's bad to have a speck of wood in your eye? 
It is bad and uncomfortable, yes? The point Jesus is making is not, never tell your brother he has a sin problem. What Jesus is saying is, you better make sure you've dealt with your own sin first so that your attitude is right when you do it. Do you see? The problem is judgmentalism. In other words, what he's saying is, don't condemn people's sin without being willing and ready and eager to show them mercy. That's the basic principle. Don't condemn sin without mercy. The warning he gives us is the same one that James will give us earlier in his letter when he says, when, when Jesus says, and James will pick it up in chapter 2 of James, is the measure you use will be used on you. If you are constantly looking for what is wrong in other people and you are not willing to extend them mercy and grace when it's exposed, then the same will be true of you on the day of judgment. Do you see? And if you think about that, what could be more fair than to treat you the same way you have treated others? Do you see? So another way to get at this is that the difference between good judging and bad judging is almost entirely one of attitude. It's almost entirely one of attitude. There are times that we have to, especially as a church, address sin. Yes? And there are times we have to contemn it and root it out in others even. And the question is, how do we do it? Do we enjoy pointing out other people's sins? Do we make a point of making sure that everybody else knows that they've sinned? James, this is one reason why James puts speech alongside judgmentalism in this passage. Did you notice that? Did you see what he says? He actually starts not with judgmentalism in verse 11, but with what? Do not speak evil against each other. And that word speaking evil is actually quite broad. It means to speak against someone. It can include everything from slandering someone on the far end to something as simple as gossip. Yeah? Because so often judgmentalism comes through the form of the way we talk. It comes through the way we talk about people. Just think briefly with me about gossip. Uh, I've got a, a book on my desk right now called Gossip. <laughs> entire book about gossip. And I'll give you the best part of it right here. You ready? Two, two, two good things I've liked from the book. One is he says it's interesting how nobody ever gossips about people's secret virtues. <laughs> That's true, right? Most people do not gossip about people's secret virtues. Oh, I can't wait to tell you the great thing that person has done. No. And then his definition of gossip, which I think is fantastic. He says gossip is spreading something you like about someone you don't. Isn't that it? Gossip is spreading something you like about someone you don't. And friends, that's the key to recognizing judgmentalism. It's an attitude problem. Yeah? The difference between proper judgment, which we have to do as Christians when we address sin, and improper judging, where we become judgmental, is one of attitude. Do we want the bad thing to be true about the person? And do we want everyone else to know it so that we can feel good? Gossip is spreading something you like about someone you don't. No surprise that James in this book has quite a lot to say about how we use our tongues. I was talking to someone about a year ago who was criticizing an old friend of theirs. And they were criticizing because they said, oh, this couple hasn't gone to church in years. And they were going on and on about how bad it was that this couple had not been to church in years. And it just so happened that this couple, I was good friends with someone in their family. And I texted that person. I said, is it true that your family members haven't been going to church for years? And this person said, no. They have been going to church. What are you talking about? I said, oh, well, this person I know seems to think that your family hasn't been going to church for years. He said, no, they've been going to church for years. 
And when I told this person, you know what the response was? Oh, well, I don't think that's true. And I thought, what? Don't you want to be glad that you're wrong? No, because this person was more interested in being right about how they were wrong than about being wrong that this person was right. Do you see? That's the attitude of judgmentalism. When you actually want the wrong you think you know about someone to be true. To be true. It is a form of wrong judgment because it lacks mercy. If you, if you go back, you don't have to turn back now, but if you look back in James chapter 2, this is what Jesus picks up on in the teaching of Jesus. And by the way, I, didn't, I did do it this morning. I, I was tempted. But one of the amazing things about the book of James is how much it's based on the teaching of Jesus. I have a list of about 12 to 15 places where James is almost certainly basing his teaching on, on the teaching of Jesus. And you can, you can find it in the Gospels. A lot of it is in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and Matthew 7, for example, very much stands behind our passage this morning. But if you go back to James chapter 2, he makes the same point that Jesus had made earlier. When James says, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. That's the same point that Jesus makes. The measure you use will be used on you. That is to say, if you are the kind of person who is never willing to show mercy to other people, God will not show mercy to you either. But then James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a very terse phrase and it's often misunderstood. And I'm convinced that what James means is, but if we are merciful to others, then that will triumph over the judgment that God would otherwise bring on us. Do you see it? It's a question of attitude. It's a question of consistency. Do we treat others the way that we need God to treat us? Are we consistent? So that's the first part. That's the first part. That's how we identify in our own hearts. It's often a question of attitude. And we need to be careful not to confuse it with the good and proper kind of judgment that we do need to do as Christians. But now we need to see the way that James defines it. If we can identify it in our own lives, we need to now see what James says about what it really is. And he says two things about what judgmentalism really is. The first one is a bit odd. Because James says that judgmentalism is law-breaking. Look at the text again. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. In other words, he's saying the very way you treat the other person is in fact the way you're treating the law. Now, how does this work? I think it's pretty simple. I think what James is saying is by not obeying the law, we in effect condemn the law and say, I don't need to worry about that, right? So we, just, we essentially take, take God's law and say, that's not relevant to me, or that's a bad law. I don't need to follow it, do you see? So it's, it's essentially the same thing we're doing to the other person. We're looking at the other person saying, oh, I condemn you. What you've done is wrong. And by virtue of doing that, we now condemn the law that God has given us. And we say, I condemn the law. And we stand in judgment over it. Do you see how that works? Now, this raises the question, what is the law that James has in mind? What law does James think we are breaking when we treat others this way? I think there are three clues in this text. You have, to be able to, you have to read James very closely and carefully to pick up on these. The first word is the word neighbor. The second word is the word law, which we'll come back to. And the third one is the word doer. Did you see them in our, in our text? All three of those words occur in these two short verses. Neighbor, law, and doer. 
and we need to see where else those come up in the book of James. The first one is, did you notice how in verse 11, James says, do not speak against each other, brothers. Yeah? And then later he says, do not speak against your brother, or judge his brother. But by verse 12, he has switched words to not brother, but what? Do you see it? Neighbor. Neighbor. Now you might say, well, that's a small thing. But it's not if you've read James carefully, because there's only one other place where James mentions the word neighbor. There's only one other place. And it's in James chapter 2, when he's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And also in that section of James, he refers to what he calls the royal law. And I'm convinced that what he means by the royal law in James is the teaching of Jesus. And one of the things that was key to Jesus' teaching is the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. You may remember last time I was here. You may have, maybe some of you blocked that out. You've forgotten. I don't know. But you remember the last time I was here, we talked about that verse in Matthew, right? The double command to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And what does Jesus say about that? On these two commands hang the entire law and the prophets, right? So Jesus takes that, those two commands from the Old Testament and set, puts those front and center and says, the entire Old Testament is those two commands in a nutshell, right? And then secondly, James says in chapter 1, he speaks of the law of liberty and the law of freedom, and he tells us to be doers of the law, not simply, what? Hearers of the law. So I think that the law that James has in mind in our passage is very much the command that Jesus gave us that sums up so much of the Old Testament law that is to love our neighbors. Now can you begin to see how judgmentalism would be the opposite of that? Judgmentalism is the opposite of loving our neighbors. And in doing so, whenever we judge somebody else in that way, with that kind of an attitude, we essentially say that the law that God has given us, the law to love them instead of condemning them, is wrong. And we can do it our way. That we know what's best. Love is very much the opposite of judgmentalism. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love, but instead love rejoices with the truth, do you see? And that's so opposite of judgmentalism. Because judgmentalism is nothing if not a spirit and an attitude that does rejoice in wrongdoing, right? That does get excited when it sees someone else doing something wrong and pounces on it. And then wants to spread it and tell other people about it. Paul goes on, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See how opposite that is? from the command, uh, from, from judgmentalism. Every time we treat people like that, when we judge them and condemn them without mercy, we're breaking the fundamental command to love our neighbor as ourself. Now I have to say there's some irony in this fact. There's some irony in this because judgmentalism so often loves the appearance of having high moral standards, doesn't it? If you think of people that you know of as being judgmental, you will often think of people who seem very concerned about what is right and what is wrong. And yet James says that the deep irony is that in those moments when we are judgmental, in that very moment we're doing the opposite of what it looks like. 
we look like we're having high standards because we're condemning someone else. And in fact, what we are actually doing is breaking God's law in the very process. One of the fundamental things about judgmentalism is how it blinds us to itself. That's why Jesus uses the I in Matthew 7, right? I mean, it's funny to think about having a two-by-four in your eye and not noticing it, right? <laughs> and yet that's what a judgmental person is. It's a person who has a two-by-four sticking out of their eye and yet can still see so clearly in other people all their faults and mistakes. They can see even a speck of, of wood. But they don't notice the fact they have a two-by-four sticking out of their eye. Judgmentalism has a way of blinding us. James goes on. He goes on, it's not just law-breaking, it's idolatry. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, my, my paraphrase of this verse is, there's one judge and you ain't it. It's in the Greek, you can check it with Doug after the service. There's one judge and you're not him. And this judge is the one who's able to save and destroy. You don't have that power, do you? I don't have that power. There's only one who has the power to condemn. And that's God. And it's because He is the only lawgiver. He is the judge of all the earth. Did we write the laws that, hold, that God holds people accountable to? No. So are we in some kind of better position to judge them by those laws? Of course not. God is the one who has the right, finally, to judge and condemn. But we act like we are the judge whenever we condemn others with no room for mercy. Whenever we damage a reputation through gossip, whenever we criticize without the facts, whenever we hold another person in contempt, contempt we essentially, James says, act like we are God. Now, if judgmentalism is not just some trite thing, but if James says it, it's law-breaking, and it's idolatry, then we have a serious problem on our hands, don't we? <laughs> and so, the last and most important point this morning is, what can we do to address it? And if this is a problem here and not just out there, the Lord knows we need a way to address it. And I think James has given it to us, but he's given it to us in the section just before this, not in our two verses. Because look right before this section, we learn a lot in the section right before this about two things that are key to addressing judgmentalism. The first is humility, and the second is grace. The first is humility, and the second is grace. Verse, verse 6 of chapter 4, James quotes from the Old Testament from one of a couple places, maybe Proverbs 3, maybe Job. But he says, therefore it says, that as the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the what? to the humble. Now see, if judgmentalism is essentially putting us putting ourselves in the place of God, then it's also a form of pride. And so it makes perfect sense that the way to resolve it, the way to deal with it, is through humility. Yes? Humility. James goes on in chapter 4, verse 10, the verse right before our section. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. We'll come back to the second part of that, but the first part. Humble yourselves before the Lord. You see, the place to start always in dealing with a judgmental spirit, however big or small, is with humility. With the recognition, the profound recognition, that you, that I, am not God. Yeah? 
Do you know that that is the fundamental sin back in the garden? The fundamental desire of Adam and Eve in the garden that got us into this whole mess was a desire to be like God. That is to say, idolatry is what got us into this mess. And James says judgmentalism is just one more outworking of that fundamental problem. So first, humility before God. We have to stop playing God. Humility means recognizing who we really are and that who we really are is not God. Second of all, humility has to come in the form of repentance. If we have been guilty, where we have been guilty of this kind of judgmental spirit, we need to admit it and confess our sins both to God and to others, right? You know what are the things that can tear a church apart like a few other things? The way we talk about each other. I've seen it again and again. And I've had enough students who've been pastors that they will tell you that it only takes a little bit. A little bit of gossip, harmless gossip at first. And then it builds and builds and builds until other things get tacked along to it. And before you know it, the church is divided. Right? It can start as a small problem. That's what James says about the tongue earlier in this book. Spark. It only takes a spark to start a wildfire. And the answer is humility. To go in humility, repent before God of our sin, and then go to the people that we have harmed in this way, to our brothers, to our neighbors, and repent to them. Now, here's the second part of the solution that I think is even more important. Because I don't know about you, <laughs> but humility is not my favorite subject. It's not my favorite thing to pursue. And the reality is when we are convicted of sins, one of the things that holds us back from repentance so often is a fear of rejection that might come if we admit it. This is precisely, to go back to the garden, is what Adam and Eve did, isn't it, in the garden? They were afraid of God when they sinned, and they did what? They hid from God. They weren't eager to tell God, hey, God, guess what we did yesterday? <laughs> no, they wanted to hide their sin from God because they were afraid that God would reject them if he found out. I have, I have little children. And sometimes it's fascinating to watch the way that they respond when they know that they're doing something wrong. And parents of little children know that the worst sound in a house of small children is what? Silence. <laughs> it's, it's always silence. Noise is what you expect. But silence means they're doing something wrong and they're being quiet to hide it. And so the next thing that James says I think is so very important for us because it, can, it, is, it is the foundation of humility. And it's the second part of James chapter 4, verse, six, or verse 10. Excuse me. James doesn't just say humble yourselves before the Lord, but he tells us what the Lord will do if we do. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will shame you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will post your sin on Instagram so that everybody knows. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will make sure to gossip it to everybody else. Is that what God does? He will what? Exalt you. Isn't that so different from the way we often respond? And in fact, it's the exact opposite of what judgmentalism does. Right? Because judgmentalism says, I found some little sin and now I'm going to broadcast it to the world. And God says, if you approach me in humility, I'll respond in the grace, in an exalting grace that takes your sin and exalts you despite it. Isn't that powerful? You see, the, what James is saying here is that God is the opposite of us. He's the opposite of our judgmental spirits. He never is judgmental. Doesn't mean he doesn't judge. We know he does. But he's never judgmental in the way he does it. Because in fact, he is eager for us to repent. 
He loves and delights in humility. And you know why? Because he loves to exalt. He exalts us in our humility. So his goal in our repentance is never to shame us. He wants to heal our sin, to forgive it, to grace us with exaltation. He is, and I don't want to draw the analogy too, too closely, okay? Don't go out of here and do anything crazy with this analogy, okay? But he's like President Bush, okay? In the illustration, because there's President Bush in that Oval Office, the man of ultimate power, and here's some lowly worker and his staff and their two little kids. And he easily could have responded to their anxiety and their fear by just saying, oh, get out of here, I don't have time for this. And that's not what he did, is it? He said he humbled himself, he opens the door, lets the dog in, and sets them at ease. That's what our God is like in the midst of your anxiety, your fear, your shame at judgmentalism. If you will humble yourself before him, the promise from James is that he will exalt you. He will give you exalting grace. You see, one of the things that grace does for us is that it transforms us from stingy lawmakers, people who want to make laws for everybody else but ourselves, lawmakers and lawbreakers, and it transforms us into merciful law followers who love others as we love ourselves. If you've been extended grace and you've experienced the grace of God, you know what you will naturally do as a result? Share it with others. Share it with others. That's the profound truth, isn't it? People who are good at receiving God's grace are naturally good at extending it to others. And the place to begin is always with humility. And so my question for you today is, will you humble yourself this morning before the Lord? Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, the question really is the same. If you're a non-Christian, you need to take that initial step of humbling yourself before the Lord and repenting of your sin and turning to Christ. But if you're a Christian, the message is the same for you too. Where you have been guilty of slandering somebody else in this room or thinking the worst of them, humble yourself. First before the Lord and then before the other person. Go in humility and seek forgiveness. And, and if the other person is really a Christian and they've experienced grace, they will respond to you the same way that the Lord will. They will exalt you. They will say, I'm so glad you came and told me. Man, that's unfortunate you said that about me. But, but I forgive you. Let's be reconciled and restored. And you're exalted, right? And that is what God does. In other words, the question for you today is the question that James has. Will you humble yourself before the Lord and find that He will exalt you? Would you bow in prayer with me? Our Father, Your grace is transformative. We are people, Father, that are prone to nitpick the, the problems in other people. Sometimes it makes us feel good. Sometimes it makes us, makes us think that we're better than them. And, oh God, these are such petty little ways that we try to exalt ourselves and make ourselves to be like you. And I pray, Father, this morning, those in this room, if anyone's conscience has been pricked by this message this morning, that they would respond the way that James tells us to, that they would humble themselves before you, humble themselves before those who they've sinned against, and go to both in repentance and find that you, and I pray that the other person too, would exalt them in grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we respond to what we just heard, I can't think of a more perfect song than, than this one that I will admit to you I fought with our Lord on for.